to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week by Jin Dada, as we affectionately know Jeremy or Jin Yumi. How are you, man? I'm doing very, very well, Kaiser, and uh, it does seem that our, our, our streak has continued of, of good Beijing air when we recalled, although this time, of course, it's not us, it's APEC. Yes, thank you, APEC. Um, in fact, we're so thankful to APEC that we're planning on devoting the entire show to you. Um, but I'm suffering kind of the, the, the preliminary stages of a postpartum depression now that APEC's done, the traffic's back already, that threatening smog bank is going to roll in again and smother and vex us in, in various yes, ways. Yes, yes. I mean, you, the thing about Beijing is it's a city where you have to have very low expectations <laughs> to be happy. <laughs> Anytime they're raised, you get into trouble. <laughs> um, so, so today, like I said, we're going to focus on APEC. Um, and I guess that's probably to nobody's surprise because world leaders from all over the Asia-Pacific region converged on this gussied-up darling of a Beijing of ours um, over the most of the last week um, at a very interesting time. Well, tensions are running pretty high between and among a number of the major participants between, of course, Russia and the United States and its allies over Ukraine, between China and Japan over the Diaoyu or Senkaku Islands, and, of course, between the U.S. and China over the old litany of familiar issues. So um, my, my take is that with big multilateral meetings like this, when there's a lot of de facto summitry, uh, atmospherics and big picture perception are really everything. I mean, leaders signal their domestic audiences and presumably also signal one another about their general intentions. And the message, I think, is very much managed and the optics are, are I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, more or less jointly decided on by the parties involved. Um, it was quite clear, at least to me, that the U.S. and China were, were agreed on how they wanted things to come out looking. So I thought that the scripting of the whole event, the timing and the content of the announcements all seemed to have been pretty carefully calibrated for maximum, we accomplished something here today kind of takeaway. Then the bookends, of course, on the, the Sino-American stage, at least, were uh, this cheering announcement on extending the validity of business and tourism visas up to 10-year multiple entry, uh, which in the U.S. case, at least, is already in effect as of today, November 13th, as we record. And uh, the announcement, of course, at the end, on the 12th, of a landmark agreement, well, I suppose that's up for debate, but it was what at least Secretary of State John Kerry described as an historic agreement on, on carbon emissions. So President Obama pledged to accelerate reductions to 26 to 28 percent uh, from 2005 levels by 2025, and uh, Xi Jinping committed to a carbon emissions peak by 2030. So talk about good atmospherics. Uh, so today to talk about APEC, we're joined by Evan Feigenbaum, who is vice chairman of the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago. Evan's a former American diplomat who has been stationed throughout East and Central Asia, South Asia too, I reckon, formerly with the Council on Foreign Relations and with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's always an insightful observer of Chinese foreign policy. Welcome to Seneca, Evan. Glad to have you on. Glad to be here. Thanks. Um, and we're also joined by Damien Ma, an old friend of the show, also at the Paulson Institute, where he's a fellow. He's co-author of one of the best books on contemporary China that I know, In Line Behind a Billion People, which I've been recommending to everybody, uh, which he wrote with uh, he co-wrote with Bill Adams. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Damien. Thank you, guys. And uh, it's great to be invited back for the uh, third time. Third time's a charm. You can make up for your shameful performance. <laughs> no, I'll try. Were. I'll try. Okay, good, good. <laughs> um, and I should note that we are doing the show with authentic Beijing background noise today. Um, some asshole is drunk showing in the building where we're recording. Renovating. Renovating. For those that right, don't right. understand Chinglish. 
So uh, apologies to our listeners if you hear the sound of that fucking jackhammer in the background. Anyway, so let's start off. What is APEC? I mean, I, we use it all. I mean, we, we refer to it as Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. You mean aside from the fact that they dress up in the funny shirts and uh, drink <laughs> tropical drinks. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Yeah. So it's, uh, well, it's one of these institutions in Asia. This one really got momentum in the 1990s. Uh-huh. The Australians in particular played a big role in that. And it's one of this rotating series of summits and minister-level meetings that people have. The problem with these big meetings in Asia is that, um, you know, the form and the ritual are driving the institutions rather than the function. So if you if you go back the last 10, 15 years and you think about all the really crisis points in Asia, you know, the Burma cyclone, uh-huh. East Timor, SARS, the, the, the places where multilateral groups like this should have been active – The responses usually ended up being very informal and with a small group of countries and more often than not actually led by the United States. So so the problem with these institutions is that they're they're big. They're very ritualized. And people sometimes they compare Asia and Europe and they say, oh, Europe, look at all those institutions. Asia has no institutions. But the problem is Asia has too many institutions, but they're too ritualized. Uh They're the wrong kind and they often have the wrong members. And APEC, I think, in some ways is one of those. But uh, nonetheless, it's an opportunity for, 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 for heads of state to get together and, and things do get done. It might not be on the crisis du jour, but would you agree at least with, with my assessment of the atmospherics of it that, that this, this is, is sort of a good direction setting? Yeah. So what it becomes is it's an occasion for a lot of bilateral meetings and bilateral right. symmetry. So you see this time uh, there was all this speculation about whether Prime Minister Abe was going to meet with President Xi. But the fact that Prime Minister Abe was coming to Beijing – made it awfully awkward to imagine a situation which the two of them didn't even meet. And so a lot of diplomacy took place between China and Japan in the run-up to that to, to help make sure that happened. So, that, you know, it is an action-forcing occasion yeah. that creates opportunities for things like that to happen. Let's start by talking about that because that was sort of the first news out the gate uh, from APEC was the Xi and Abe meeting. And ahead of that on last Friday, the meeting between uh, foreign ministers. Um, is, is Did something of substance emerge from that. Uh, it seemed to me at least like that was uh, an auspicious beginning. Um, I mean, I know that there were translation discrepancies between what the Chinese and Japanese versions of the statement were on Friday. Damien, do you want to take a crack at that? I totally defer to Evan on this one. I can only talk about the awkward pictures. So. <laughs> well, okay, what well, you think of the awkward pictures? Get you in on the awkward pictures. Uh, well, my favorite one was not the, the initial one that everyone posted of the awkward handshake where, you know, she kind of just... The grimacing. Stop looking at Abe halfway through what he was saying. Uh, looks just, as though he's just seen something particularly right. disgusting on that's the right. floor. <laughs> but the one I like I like better was when the two first ladies were also side by side, and Abe was sort of turning to looking at she and she just you know both she and Pan Yuan were sort of just not looking, not trying really hard to not look at you know Abe and uh, his wife. So that to me was pretty awkward too. So, but in terms of the rest, I think I will let Evan talk about it. Well, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, the news is that at first that it happened. Right. Right. Because uh, a lot of people wondered whether it was going to happen. And given how much tension there's been in that relationship, I think it's it's got to be you got to say it's a good thing that it happened because it could be the beginning of something that becomes a more normal interaction between those two countries. So the Chinese take on it was that um, the major takeaway is that now something that, that the Japanese side had refused to acknowledge was even in dispute is now acknowledged as being in dispute. That is not the Japanese that, take that's on not the Japanese take. That's what I thought. I mean, and, and uh, somehow it was allowed to, uh, there, there were two versions of this. It was a Japanese and a Chinese version of them that used uh, language that 
from the analyses that I've seen was was quite different. Um, yeah, I had I don't know I had three years of college Japanese that are now failing me, but I think okay. the consensus seems to be that they finessed it by by having slightly different texts that interpret. But I mean, you know, I mean, everybody talks about Chinese politics and Chinese nationalism, and Japan has politics too. Sure. So that's the context in which they have to operate. So it seems like they, you know, it was just enough for each side to get to this point, and now the question is, where do they go from here? There was an agreement to, over um, some sort of uh, high level. Uh, communications line now to, to resolve any potential uh, you know mishaps that may, might happen out there uh, off, off the coast of these islands is that correct I think that's a little ambiguous too exactly ambiguous what they committed to okay. but I mean you know the thing I, I mean you're getting to the point which is these secu- they have this very interdependent economic relationship in a lot of ways but then you have these security tensions so they're kind of you know china japan relations are kind of emblematic of a lot of what's going on in asia generally which is you have this tale of two asias you have economic integration and you have security fragmentation and those two are absolutely in collision with each other and so the question is you know which of those is going to win and asian countries including these two have every incentive to try to maximize the more affirmative elements of the relationship but you know as we've seen over the last year or two uh, the security tensions are real, and the nationalisms are real, and so I actually think this is maybe the beginning of something, but by no means the end of the story for those two. Jeremy, what was your sense about how this played in the Chinese press? Well, it was uh, interestingly, it was uh, well, uh, perhaps uh, starting startlingly obviously, it was underplayed in the Chinese press. So, I mean, even if you looked at the Xinhua uh, news agency Chinese and English homepages, there was a fairly prominent link to it on the English page when it happened, and you couldn't find it pretty much. You had to look really hard to find it uh, on the Chinese Xinhua page. And then, of course, all the media followed suit. So it was, it was, it was de-emphasized. And what was passed around on social media was basically the awkward handshake photo, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, you can see perhaps Peng Liuan's stagecraft there. Uh, you know, I, he, 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 I think it was very, very carefully planned where he would stand and where he would look. A lot of thought went into that. So, She also did a lot of first lady diplomacy uh, during a- APEC, right? I, I saw mm. her taking, taking people around to various museums and, and, and sort of doing a lot of the, uh, the, uh, the entertaining, I right. guess. Wifey, wifey stuff, basically, I uh, have to say. But anyway. asset. So before we move on to U.S.-China uh, bilateral relations and what happened at APEC, what about Vladimir Putin? Um, what was on the Russian agenda for APEC, and, and uh, how did he fare? You mean besides the coat incident? Oh, the, the coat incident. Okay, so maybe we should quickly uh, go over the coat incident for people who, who, who didn't see this. Overblown. Overblown, okay. Yeah, I agree. So I Putin put his coat on, on Peng Liuan because it was cold. Right. And then all this ridiculous nonsense on the Chinese internet was, oh, he's hitting on her. He's hitting on her. And uh, then, of course, the Western media all reported on this nonsense. Well, I mean, it was scrubbed, right? I mean, the, Yeah, it was, it was censored. I mean, sure. which, of course, drew more attention to yeah. it, which is a lesson <laughs> that they need to learn. Um, anyway. What's his besides, agenda? Besides that, his, besides agenda, his agenda is to turn east because he's under an enormous amount of pressure if he looks west. You know, and I mean, especially, I mean, I, I think that turn east has been the case, not just with gas, but in general for a while. Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about the, you know, the American pivot to Asia, the rebalance to Asia. Think about this as kind of a Russian pivot to Asia. And there are gas related and economic reasons for that because the Chinese are a long-term customer that they want to cultivate. Sure. But the other thing is that the more they've come under pressure in a post-Ukraine environment, the more central the relationship with China has become, both symbolically and substantively. So I think his agenda was very much 
and APEC, as we say, it's the vehicle for this because Russia's in APEC. So his agenda was to come to Beijing, try in every way possible to show in highly symbolic public ways that China and Russia are friendly. And then that's part of the geopolitical picture that the, that the West has to keep in mind. And there is some substance to that because as Damien, I mean, you really know gas markets. I mean, there are even more gas deals now that have been introduced. It's a small share of the gas demand here. But for Russia, it's they need the customer. It's that, they didn't grab a lot of headlines. Was that because we were reading mainly English language uh, that was focused on the U.S.-China bilateral relationship instead? No, I think uh, I think uh, um, it's not clear to me. It was a little am- ambiguous how much of this was sort of new additional deal or sort of you know fully uh, fully affirming the deal they, oh, they the supposedly right, signed not too long ago, right? Because there was some speculation over whether that was finalized fully. So it could have just been fully finalizing that particular deal, but there could have been some smaller additions to it. Uh, but either way, I mean, you know, you look at where. China is getting its gas, it's Turkmenistan, it's the Burmese pipeline, and mm-hmm. it's the Rus- It's going to be the Russian pipeline. So those are the three overland pipelines that, that they're going to do. So that's they, 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 they absolutely need to get that done with the Russians. You know, the problem they got, the Russians and the Chinese agree on one thing, which is they're deeply ambivalent about American power and American foreign policy. They don't like it. Sure. But they're also deeply ambivalent about one another. And I mean, I used to, you know, you said in the intro, I used to spend a lot of time in Central Asia. So these are former Soviet countries. And for the last 10 years, every Chinese inroad there economically and otherwise has been at whose expense? It's yeah, been at Russia's said, expense. Right. And so where they the intersect, game, as they say, right? oh, it was a great game. But I mean, you know, the reason I, I mean, people say it's a new great game. But the reality is that the Central Asian countries are actually pretty adept at Playing them against Yeah, one playing another. everybody off against each other. But the, the reality team. is those two countries are very ambivalent about each other too, China and Russia. And so so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. But for the Russians, the Russians need this relationship badly right now in ways that I think are have a much more immediate force and relevance than it than it does for China. So I wanna kinda of pig piggyback on that a little bit. There's been a lot of argument or or, or views that there is an increasing you know, real access between Moscow and Beijing. What do people here think about that particular view? Well, I mean, you're asking me. <laughs> yeah, anybody. Jeremy? Convinced? Not Which convinced? Which people? I, I, um, you know, sort well, of I mean, to a certain extent, convinced. I mean, you people know, out of D.C., people out of, you know, other places that well, have been writing in magazines and foreign I, you affairs. Know, Xi's first stop as uh, leader of China was, was Moscow, right? I mean, that was his first visit abroad. And, you know, that's just yet another symbol of, of, of something that, I mean, does seem to be very real. Um, so I, I think, I mean, Axis has connotations that perhaps I wouldn't particularly choose that word. But I mean, I think it's pretty evident that there is increased coziness. And, um, you know, the, they do share a lot of views, not just hostility to American for, foreign policy, but, you know, ideas about how you should run your own country, like, you know, lock up journalists, censor the internet, um, you know, don't be tolerant of fringe groups. You know, I mean, China at least isn't sort of hung up about gays in the way that Russia seems to be. But, you know, China has plenty of minorities who get treated, you know, as badly. So it's good for them to be together because they make each other look normal. It's like a safe zone. Yeah. Yeah, it's a safe zone. There's this Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It's all these countries. that It's like a safe zone. Yeah. Nobody talks to them about yeah. the it's things like, that make them uncomfortable there. They're all former convicts, kind of. They don't have to worry about anyone questioning them. Sorry, that's, I mean, that's a bit rude, really. But <laughs> I, the, I, you asked for people's take. I think that's my take, not people's take. Yeah, that's your take, right? <laughs> not people's take. I think that, that there's still a lot of very latent and not so latent um, 
distrust and and uh, a very strong ambivalence toward Russia. I mean, just a few years ago, I mean, when when uh, when you have say a Russian presence on Chinese social media, what's the in- immediate reaction? They're shouted down. They're they're they're. I mean, regard they they don't attract followers except for hostile followers. Whereas American diplomatic efforts, um, sort of public diplomacy efforts, are much more warmly greeted. Of course, that has something to do with the, the bias that's prevalent on. Chinese social media, but I think that is indicative of something. Um, there's, there's a, you know, there, there isn't, there are admirers of, of Vladimir Putin, but there are a lot more people who, uh, who see him as a species of, of dictator that they're they're very much uncomfortable with. They, they, they I don't think that they like uh, to see the adventurism that he's engaged in. I mean, spoiling the Olympics in 2008 with that little foray into Georgia, and then uh, in, in, you know. More his more recent adventurism in, in Ukraine, I think that there were probably a lot of people who see would see parallels in the annexation of Crimea and and look at um, you know they say there are lessons to be drawn there, uh, but I think that uh, th- he's not well loved uh, among the Chinese masses. That's that's just my distinct sense. Yeah, Putin. I don't know. I would say Russia's not well loved personally. I mean, I think I think there's a deep distrust of Russia that has many historical reasons. But also, I mean, if you offer any Chinese person green card for U.S. or green card for Russia, of course they're going to go U.S. Of course they're going to go U.S. But I mean, if you ask many Chinese people what they think of Putin, strong leader, okay. good. You well, know, we so. were talking about uh, green cards and visas and things like that. So let's let's move on to that next topic. At the very beginning, um, uh, I, I talked about the bookends and and the first sort of positive, sunshiny announcement to come out of, of this was, of course, the uh, the announcement that visas, made by President Obama, that, that visas to the U.S. and presumably also to China, it is going to be reciprocal, will be uh, available for tourists and, and business people for up to 10-year validity. That means, uh, that, that of course, they can't stay for 10 years, but the visa will be valid for multiple entries across 10 years. Uh, what, do, what do you guys make of that? What's your assessment of the importance of that agreement? And what went on behind the scenes to, to, to bring that apart? I see both of you are kind of shaking your heads. Yeah, we're looking at each other. I don't know. Uh, okay, well, so Jeremy, can, I, can I offer my take as somebody sure. who holds a South African passport only, which is slightly more useful than a Chinese passport, but we basically require visas for everywhere. Uh-huh. And uh, I uh, got a 10-year visa to the United States uh, about in the year 2000, um, and I couldn't believe it when they gave it to me because, you know, I, I was the only foreigner applying for a visa. Everybody else was Chinese. And the guy gave me the visa and I opened it and I, I said, is, is, there, is this right? Ten, ten years? Can it be? Uh, and it immediately destroyed the vestiges of my college soft, like left-wing juvenile anti-Americanism. <laughs> destroyed immediately <laughs> by the 10-year re- visa. Boom! You know? And, um, it, I mean, if you hold a European or American passport it's very difficult to understand how traumatic visas are because you you have to go through this process which is getting increasingly traumatic. You have to provide sensitive information about your finances, you know, all kinds of things, even just for a tourist visa. Um, and once you have a 10-year visa, it's an amazing feeling of, oh, wow, I can go there anytime I want. So I think the effects of this thing 
are going to be that you're going to see more and more Chinese spending more time in America, loving America more, leaving their money in America, sending their children to school in America and being able to visit them easily. I think it's very, very positive for the United States. Great. The other way around, I don't know whether I believe the Chinese government will honor this. I mean, the People's Daily today tweeted a photo of an American holding up a 10-year visa. But, you know, I've seen a lot of photos of foreigners with this legendary Chinese green card. And as a 20-year resident of China, you know, there's, there's no way for me to get one. They don't even provide a, a way to apply. There's no public way of applying for this. So I don't know if the Chinese are going to stick to the, the, their side of the bargain, but I think it's an un, unmitigated and, and well, they completely can't good not. thing. They can't not, can they? Well, yes, they, of course they can. They well, can. It's reciprocal. I mean, but, but it's reciprocal. I mean, they'll, they'll, the U.S. will just pull that privilege too. It's always going to be in, in balance, right? Uh, well, we'll see. I, I, uh, Do you happen to know whether this will include work visas for people like me? I no, it's not work visas. It's so for tourists and business. A, a, yeah, it's F visas. Renewal. It's okay. F and L visas. Okay, F and L. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next topic. Um, China has been very assertive with its economic diplomacy of late, uh, introducing in recent months a number of initiatives that were all discussed at APEC. Uh, there was the AIIB, uh, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Silk Road Fund, and of course the FTAP, F-T-A-A-P. Uh, though that's not really a Chinese initiative, is it, Evan? It is not a Chinese initiative. It's funny because in the media in the last few days especially, you've seen this narrative about competing trade agreement, you know, the U.S. is pushing TPP, China's pushing this Chinese thing called FTAP, free trade area in the Asia Pacific. But, you know, FTAP, it's not, as you said, it's not a Chinese idea at all. In fact, embedded into the APEC idea from the inception was that some someday you would have an APEC-wide economic community. Right. And so, you know, Americans like Fred Bergston, for example, have been writing, you know, back to 2004, 2005 uh, about FTAP. I have to go back and check, but I think President Bush may have endorsed FTAP at uh, one at the Singapore uh, APEC summit. So, so this is an idea that's been aspirationally baked within APEC from the inception, and Americans have been big drivers of it. So the Chinese have essentially picked up an old idea uh, and now tried to run with it. Um, and, and part of that, let's face it, is because China's not in TPP. Right. And TPP has become a fast-moving vehicle for potential trade liberalization around the region. So um, my understanding was that, that Washington, if Washington had its way, this wouldn't have been part of the program at APEC. I mean, they were, they were dissuade, trying to dissuade this from even, even being brought up. Is that- well, I don't know if they were trying to dissuade it from being brought up. But, I mean, they're definitely – you know, there's, we, the problem with all these trade agreements is that countries have a bandwidth problem. Right, there's only so much negotiating you can do at one time. And for a variety of very good reasons, TPP is absolutely the American priority. Right. And so the United States is trying to, I think, direct as much attention of it and its major TPP partners uh, to that. And I think saw the emphasis on FTAP as a distraction that was designed in part to take some momentum out of out okay. of the TPP negotiation. So, so I mean, that would have been a big part of the concern. Right, but Washington does sort of still then see this as something adversarial to... to well, it doesn't have to be adversarial. I mean, aspirationally, the U.S. has been for FTAP for a while. I right. think the problem is that the idea of an APEC-wide trade agreement is not very realistic in the near term. So what you got were these kind of first-mover agreements mm-hmm. like TPP. And the thing about TPP, remember, most trade agreements over the last decade to decade and a half, they're really about things that happen at the border tariffs, customs. What TPP is about, 
principally is the things that happen behind the border and across the border. Treatment of state-owned enterprises, national treatment, subsidies, uh, labor standards. Uh And that's kind of the way the U.S. is thinking about trade policy now is the principal barriers to trade are not – at the border, they're not there's at the been border. so they're much tariff reduction. They're, 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 so when the U.S. has high standards trade agreement, that's why it regards TPP as so central. I so I think, you know, I mean, the fact is, if you were doing FTAP actively right now, it, I mean, I think there is a case that it would suck the oxygen out of the TPP negotiation. So, so, but I, I just think the media narrative that this is some kind of Chinese invention just ignores a lot of the history. Okay. Uh, but what is it, does it really get it wrong then? I mean, the way, if, by, by, by understanding it that way, how is that, that narrative framing, uh, changing our thinking isn't that sort of consistent with what what what, shouldn't why wouldn't a tpp build to someday toward a free trade area of the asia pacific right but i mean the idea of a u.s china free trade agreement is kind of fantastical at this point (laughs) at this point yeah so so you know think of tpp as a high standards first mover agreement among important apec countries and some not so important in terms of the global trade picture but but you know aspirationally the u.s has been for ftap before so you could see it leading toward that down the road and, and what can you guys tell us about this new Silk Road Fund? Uh, it looks westward and not so much toward the Pacific. Um, it's it's more focused on inland, and it's ostensibly to resurrect the old uh, Silk Road, the old uh, Silk Road that, that for centuries from, from the Han Dynasty all the way through the Yuan really kind of linked countries of Eastern and, and, and Central Asia. Uh, it's been compared in some quarters to the Marshall Plan. Um, is there any reason to be invoking that? Is that Does that sound reasonable to you i don't think that's a very good analogy i mean mm-hmm. you know i mean if you if you if you actually go if you flip it and you stop talking about this in terms of china and you think about the countries that are gonna be the recipients of this infrastructure spending you know central asian countries they're landlocked right and in the case of uzbekistan they're double landlocked right they're landlocked by landlocked countries so for those countries the central strategic problem they have is geography Right, because I think the World Bank has some research that shows that if you're landlocked, it knocks about a point and a half off your GDP growth uh-huh. just because of transaction costs on customs and borders and things like that. So from their perspective, getting linked up to the global economy is an unmitigatedly positive thing. Um, and the problem they had for the period from the late 19th century on is that they were basically dependent on a single point of transit. Right, pipelines that ran north to Russia, single market, single pipeline, single infrastructure link, single point of transit. So when these countries became independent, the central problem for them was how to guarantee their independence and their sovereignty by basically diversifying their transit links. So they weren't so dependent on one country, let's face it, Russia, Mm -hmm. that could use that dependence as a source of leverage. So for the United States and for others, the whole game, you know, the talk about a trans-Caspian pipeline, for example, it was to diversify the infrastructure links, give them bargaining power, support their independence. Um, And so New Silk Road, it's kind of funny because the U.S. has talked about a New Silk Road itself and its policy for quite some time. Um, and I think there's, there just, there ain't nothing wrong with building infrastructure to these countries. The question I think is how it gets built. And we're back into this question about standards. So, you know, I'll just give you an example. So, so uh, when I was working on Central Asia, the State Department, Tajikistan, which is the ninth poorest country in the world, mm-hmm. and is a country that could stand to get the economic fundamentals right, was negotiating some kind of a loan facility with the World Bank. And the World Bank, you know, has its own brand of conditionality that includes getting macroeconomic fundamentals right. China at that point dropped about a $637 million 
soft loan into Tajikistan that was infrastructure related without the similar kind of conditionality. Now, there's nothing wrong with lending for infrastructure because Tajikistan needs the infrastructure. But the question is, um, how does that get built? And among other things, it gets built with Chinese labor, while a lot of Tajik labor is up in Russia as migrant labor. So I think I think this whole idea of linking this region back to the global economy through infrastructure linkage is a very positive thing. But the question is going to be how that lending gets done um, and kind of what the nature of the infrastructure is in terms of environmental impact and other things. But it's, you know, I mean, nobody should go around opposing infrastructure. It's, right. kind of, it's not a good thing. To There's do. another infrastructure uh, bank on the books now, too, AIIB, the Asia Infra Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, and that's an opportunity for the United States to get in and maybe raise the standards to, to impose some sensible conditionality for the lending. But uh, the U.S., again, doesn't seem to be interested and seems to be dissuading its allies, say, Australia, from participating in, in this as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that seems to be the case. So the Chinese are, I mean, the Infrastructure Bank is an example of new institutions that China has been central in setting up. The BRICS Bank is another one. Right. So, I mean, these are new institutions, and China's behind the creation of these. But, you know, you can think of new institutions in two ways. They could be additional institutions, or they could be alternative institutions. Mm -hmm. So they're definitely additional, but whether they're alternative depend, depends a lot on how they evolve. And if you care how they evolve, then you need to be in on the ground floor and trying to shape them. You know, so that, for instance, there's been a lot made about the environmental standards again. But if you look at Chinese policy banks like the China, you know, the CDB or the China Exim, they've made some progress in recent years on things like environmental impact assessment in overseas lending. Now, that doesn't mean they're doing it the same way as the international financial institutions. In fact, at the Paulson Institute, we published a paper. We have a paper there. We have a paper yeah. that explicitly <laughs> compares kind of the use of environmental impact assessment at the Chinese policy banks, the CDB and the XM, and what happens at the multilateral development banks. And there's a gap. But China has been gradually trying to assimilate some of these practices. So in that environment, there are opportunities, I think, to form some linkages. And to give you an example, the Inter-American Development Bank, China's uh -huh. very active in Latin America. I think the Inter-American Development Bank and China actually have a joint loan facility now. It's a couple of billion dollars. And so, um, you know, this is not uh, dissimilar to the way the World Bank worked with the Islamic Development Bank or the Arab funds that were set up. There are ways to, have, you know, you need to plus up capital for infrastructure spending around sure. the world because there's a shortage of capital. But um, it also needs to be done in high standards kind of ways. And so it seems to me this is an area where development banks ought to be able to work together. And that's probably why the president of the World Bank, Jim Kim, has been saying that you know, he sees the competition as probably a healthy thing. When I took college economics, you know, I'm a free market kind of guy. So <laughs> competition beats oligopoly every time. So the question is, you know, do the Chinese, what kind of standards do they bake into this bank? Because the bank is going to happen whether, you know, the... The United States likes it or not. So the question is, how is that bank going to evolve? And I think if it evolves in ways that are really in tandem and complementary to the international financial institutions like ADB, then it probably will assure more infrastructure gets built. So, but I think that's what's on the U.S. mind. But um, you know, I don't think some of these articles that say you know this is an alternative architecture global. I just don't think infrastructure finance is really central to global order. Um, there'll be a lot of tests of standards between China and other countries over time, and infrastructure finance isn't one of them. 
Mm-hmm. Do, you, um, do you think that the Obama administration is missing an opportunity here in sort of uh, keeping it at arm's length and showing a, sort of a bit of hostility toward it? Do you think that they're missing an opportunity for that kind of uh, participation in, in standard setting? You mean to join the to actually join to the to join or, or to you know have observer status or to have yeah. I don't I don't think it's realistic to think the U.S. would have joined the bank because I think my understanding is that the requirement for joining the bank was to put up capital and remember the U.S. doesn't do a lot of public infrastructure finance itself. It's right. usually talking about private capital for infrastructure. So, that's true. That's so for the U.S. Chinese to capitalize game. the bank as a government with public money is a little bit far-fetched. But, you know, you mentioned observer status. I, I, I think the question is what kind of links um, up front would the U.S. want to build? And that's the question that was being debated in Australia and other places. So I do think, I mean, you know, how many, a lot of countries joined and who's out? It's Japan, South Korea, Indonesia, Australia, the United States. And I, I would bet that within six months, at least two to three of those countries joined. So you don't want a situation in which you have this new institution and the United States is self-isolated either. That's not a happy scenario for hmm. the U.S. Um, I guess we'd move to to the sort of other bookend of this, which was the other happy kind of sunshiny announcement, which was, of course, the climate agreement. Uh, this There was a lot of, apparently, a lot of, of negotiation behind the scenes. I saw that the... the, the the, the Wall Street Journal published, I guess, what was probably a TikTok on, on, on what had happened behind it. I hadn't gotten a chance to read it before we came into tape. But uh, what do you know about what happened behind the scenes to, to bring this uh, announcement into being? You guys are so tapped in. No? Are we tapped in? Oh, you're tapped in. You're more than <laughs> I am. Speak for yourself. Way the fuck out here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we can really offer anything behind the scenes since it was a pretty, uh, it was kept under pretty tight wraps uh, for purposes, I think, because, you know, you just never know during these negotiations. So, um, but what we can say is that clearly this was a you know fairly positive piece of news coming out of uh, the the uh, APEC summit, and it was always climate change was always an area in which U.S. and China could you know uh, collaborate on, and I think there was a lot of hope that they would do something uh, you know uh, together uh, more significantly. I think the key takeaway for me here is that. Uh, they, you know, both sides throw out some targets that basically define the parameters of how they would go into Paris 2015 negotiations next year. And that's certainly a positive development. But I would, uh, I would quibble with the fact that there was sort of a lot of, you know, sort of word choices in Western press that said commitments and pledges. And if you look closely at both the U.S. statement and the Chinese statement, U.S. statement says intends Chinese statement says, Jihua. Jihua, and plans to. So these are not really, these are clearly not equivalent to commitments yet. Uh, you know, whether they at some point down the line become binding commitments unilaterally, I think that's something we can, we can you know, observe going forward. But I think they did set some parameters for negotiations next year. Uh, and my own personal view is that I think it's probably going to be easier for the Chinese to hit their targets than it is for the United States. Well, I, that, actually, I have a question about that because you, you called it sunny good news, Kaiser, and a lot of people around the world did, uh, and liberal Americans Mitch did. McConnell. But Mitch McConnell immediately piped up and said Obama has a war on coal. And uh, how will this play in the United States? Now and, that somebody from uh, a, a major coal-producing state is, is Speaker of the House – or is, is – is, uh, is Senate Majority Leader. Indeed. I mean, is this going to cause, uh, I mean, how will Americans view this? How will the American political establishment view this? Yeah, I think that's precisely, that That, that undergirds my, my my view that it will be harder for for, 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 for the us, US for, for the United States, because the politics there are just inherently more difficult, I think. I mean, They're line... focused on the U.S. commitments, not on the Chinese commitments. I mean, I think the issue with the Chinese commitments 
for a lot of people in the U.S. was whether these were already baked into yeah, that's Chinese what I was planning. Gonna say. This so is already in, words, in planning. The U.S. essentially negotiated something away in exchange for things that China was intending to do anyway. I think I think the politics in the U.S. are focused more on the U.S. commitments than on what China will do, except in that transactional sense. Well, you know, it was significant, though. For, it was China came out and they said this, and even though these these were baked in, these are, I mean, a, a lot of people have, have offered up pretty good analysis about how in existing plans there's already uh, targets that that, that – uh, you know, see that level in the energy mix. Right. Hydro is already very close. Could peak right. earlier. Could peak than, considerably earlier. Than well, some people will say China likes to underpromise and overdeliver, but uh, the the thing that I I uh, think is significant is that they they came out, they made this this joint statement without all the the usual caveats, without all all the the analogies to, uh, about how you know you've been picking out at the trough for 150 years and you're responsible for most of the hydrocarbons in the air now to begin with and so i mean there there was none of that and this was this was a sort of cleaner uh statement of intent and that was my my sense for it this was this came without Clearly, all of as that. a joint announcement i think this was certainly you know a pretty big highlight and really big positive uh sort of being j- just 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 to get both sides to throw out some upper bound or sure. lower you know some bounds some bound right uh that that i think uh really uh i, I think uh we were uh, discussing this earlier. This might actually make it difficult for a country like India going to Paris because it suggests that the Chinese are actually possibly getting closer. And they're not going to gonna lean on the old we're a developing exactly. country. You know, thing. China and India used to lead the G, you know, G77 grouping, uh, uh, cer- certainly at Copenhagen that was the case. Right. Uh, and, and so so, so I think there could be some interesting new dynamics when we head into ah, Paris right. uh, next year. The Don't you think the Chinese narrative has changed on this? I mean, you guys live here. Yeah. Because I, I remember hearing all that, you know, it's Western conspiracy to keep us. But, I mean, we were talking about, we were joking about APEC blue before with the blue sky. I mean, you walk out the door here, you can hardly deny that there's an air quality problem. And Xi Jinping, no, I mean, he's told about it He's got to play the air. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, and surely, like, it, it, I mean, forget the it, multilateral and the international in Paris and the U.S. So just in a Chinese context, I mean, Chinese I've known are talking about the air. Sure, but I mean, air and, 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 and CO2 emissions are two different things. I mean, people are more focused on the immediacy of the pollution problem. Than climate. Than, than, climate. Right, than, than, than anthropomorphic. You know, uh, global warming, right? That is technically true, but it's also fundamentally basically a coal problem, right? right. So coal has both pollutants and emissions, right? So you get the NOx and SOx from the coal plus the carbon. So, Did you so, guys happen to see the Alexa Olson piece in Foreign Policy today? Uh, I was just going to mention that about the fact that the, the, this was greeted with great fanfare by the American and the international press, but also, again, very underemphasized. Yeah, very, very, very little in, in the Chinese media. Um, that was... The first thing I noticed that it took a very long time for Xinhua to even put it up on right. its front page, mm. and it was very uh, small. What's your not theory? the case in the U.S. as right. you not said, because Senator McConnell, who's a great guy by the way, um, just I mean, there, there's a question of what's realistic in U.S. politics, especially when a president of the United States is committing his successors to things that are politically contentious in the U.S. Right. Um, what's your pet theory, Damien, about why it is that this was so muted? You don't you don't have. I, I, would, I have I, no pet theory on why it was. Yeah, people should check it out. I mean, Deb Seligson actually had, I thought, she had some pretty, pretty good spot-on uh, assessments of why that would have been the case, and, and part of it was this: this, uh, this is not something that addresses immediately the pollution problem. Uh, and I think that that people probably are aware of of that. That that you know, in, increasing the clean or the non-fossil uh, mix in, in energy production 
by 2030 doesn't mean that I don't have to wear a filtration mask or continue to ex- buy expensive filters. I, I don't think climate change is an emotive issue in China, honestly. I mean, I don't think it's something, you know, on both sides, you know, both sides of the debate, you just don't have the passions here. Right. Very good. Anyway, check out that piece. That, that It's quite good. Um, I guess that, that takes us near to the end, but I guess there's one more uh, topic that I did want to talk about, which was um, – Earlier this week, I guess there was, there's two more things that I want to take. Uh, one, one was the press conference itself. I think it was remarkable that that uh, and and speaks I think to to the administration's uh, I think abilities to to get the Chinese side to make some concessions that that Xi Jinping took uh, a presser and and took uh, questions from the New York Times. In fact, um, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, asked the. Do you think this was the best use of uh, an opportunity, a first opportunity to ask General Secretary of, of APEC uh, uh, to, to to use this to talk about the New York Times' uh, visa problems? Was this was this maybe inserting themselves too much into the news? Was this maybe too self-serving? Was this the best question they could have asked? They asked uh, – Mark Landler asked another couple of questions about the perceptions of the pivot and then uh, – I can't remember what the other one was, but uh, – what, what do you think? Was this was this the best way he could have used his? <laughs> Nobody I, wants to. I actually didn't really even watch the presser, or I didn't catch that particular uh, question. Uh, so, so I. Okay, good I'll, dodge, I'll, I'll Jeremy, to Jeremy. Well, you know, this I is know one of those issues say, right, right, right. where I, I can kind of get ballistic about. I mean, I think it was a great use of the time. I think it was a great question. I think this is precisely <laughs> the type of question that should be asked at these kinds of events. Um, and I, I think it's. It's not just about the New York Times visa. I mean, this type of question and Xi's answer, which was, I don't care, and you guys are the ones who made the problem. It's your fault, right? You know, he used this Chinese idiom. You put the bell on the tiger, it's your problem to take it off. I mean, this tells us very, very clearly what we can expect from Xi Jinping in terms of uh, Well, did you expect something different? Did you expect a different response? No, but uh, having it in black and white, having it come out of his mouth is, I think, a very good thing. Uh, You know, they're admitting what they think now. Even five years ago, when it came to internet and media censorship, you tended to get this kind of dissembling from Chinese officials along the lines of, we just manage the media like all countries do. That was the stock response. He's being more straight up and saying that that, that the the tone of coverage is linked to... Yeah, we do not agree with your ideas on press freedom. And you know what? We don't care. And I think it's very good for the world to understand very clearly that that is the case here. Yeah, I'm, you know, the applause that Landler received when he got back to the press filing room just probably confirmed for C his beliefs about Western journalists having an essentially hostile agenda, don't you think? Well, you know, that's not the Western media's fault. I'm sorry. You know, I just don't think that's the Western media's fault. And when did press freedom become a hostile agenda? Uh, right. Well, um, you know, it, it, they, they, they do see it that as well, they as say here, right? Right. They, we, they that do doesn't mean we it. should see right, it that right. way. So the question of how, I mean, which is you know, since we're talking about hostility, I think that one one sort of uh, counter narrative to, or you know, all, all, all this glad handing and, and and happy smiles at at, at APEC. There was another um, three articles I think that I saw. There was Peter Ford's in Christian Science Monitor, Ed Wong's, and then Josh Chin's in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, respectively, uh, all talking about the sort of rising anti-American, anti-Western rhetoric that's emanating from Beijing. Uh, it's happening at the same time. Um, the Zhou Xiaoping's. Yeah, the Zhou Xiaoping stuff. Um, 
and which I think there's 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 an assumption in all these pieces that that these attitudes are about manipulating public opinion and encouraging nationalism, about silencing dissent, and so forth. And there's no doubt on my part that that that's all part of it. But I I guess for me, I'm struck by how these pieces really kind of fail to try to you know see what the neighborhood looks like through Beijing's windows. I mean, it looks. I don't think that they're 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 wrong to see interventionism in the ascent right now in American foreign policy. It has been since the Clinton administration, if not before. Um, whether it's neoconservative or whether it's 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 liberal, it's not like any of the United States administrations that have been in the White House since one. I mean, the two that have been in uh, have been kind of shy about advocating, you know, regime change or, uh, you know, there's no grand conspiracy between NGOs and the liberal American media and, and the White House. I, I, I know there's no grand conspiracy, but surely one can see why it, it looks awfully like there is. Yes, sure, you can see, you can sympathize with this point of view. I mean, no, I'm, not if saying, you, I'm not saying sympathize. I I'm can sympathize. Saying, I mean, look out from Beijing, look where Hawaii is, look where Guam is, and then the, 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 the nine dash line doesn't look so ridiculous. Uh, you know, look, all these events you, uh, that's you've not, talked that's about. Not the same thing I mean, at all, but you're, you know, you're, you're sitting in a country which has a completely different, if you know the famous New Yorker cover of, you know, the view from Manhattan. I mean, right. if you try and put that in, in China, I mean, they are connected, these things. And I, I, I can sympathize with that. that point of view. But it doesn't mean I, I, uh, I support it. And I, I think it is a dangerous uh, sign, uh, you know, that people like Xi Jinping are that Xi Jinping are, uh, is, um, you know, saying complimentary things about people like Zhou Xiaoping, who are essentially writing high school essays. Right. I, I, I promise you that he did not read Zhou Xiaoping's essays. I'm, That's I'm even sure. worse. Right. That's There's even worse. somebody feeding him talking points. It's even worse. That's just how it works. Somebody fed him talking points, some idiot fed him. Well, uh, he hired the idiot. I mean, right. you know, that, that's no excuse. Oh, last topic. Uh, there <laughs> Sorry, was a, well, but maybe we can ask Evan for his take on I that. I don't think they're, they're, they're shaking their heads. Oh, you're shaking your head? Well, no, I mean, I, I, you know, we were talking about the Chinese and the Russians before. So, okay, here's another thing they share in common is their generally dim view of everything that you guys have just been discussing. But... I mean, the China, you know, the Chinese foreign policy is perfectly capable. You're talking about the neighborhood of seeing things in their periphery as being about them. That maybe that's the case through their lens, but that have nothing to do with them. I mean, you know, the U.S. had an air base in Kyrgyzstan, for example. So was that air base there to contain China? No, it was there as a mobility and logistics hub to fight a war in Afghanistan. It had nothing right. to do with China. But there was a narrative here in China that was all about China. It's not about China. And meanwhile, there are things happening in the neighborhood. I, you know, I, as an analytical statement, it's right. That may be how the neighborhood looks to them. But if you go around the neighborhood and you visit Hanoi and you visit New Delhi and you visit Tokyo and you visit Manila, there is a common thread that China has scared its neighbors silly with some of its choices. Sure. At minimum, because there's a lot of uncertainty about where this is going. So, you know, if I were Chinese, uh, really, I'd probably connect about, those threads and start asking myself some questions. Right. About the, the hostility, that, that's only, you know, part of where that comes from. This, this mentality of being under siege, it doesn't, it's not the, the, the pivot or being ringed in. It's, it's uh, a more subtle thing. It's this idea that, that you are trying, you are essentially uh, so hell-bent on undermining anything that, that doesn't conform to the, this idea of uh, liberal capital Western style democracy uh that's the hostility to ngos that's the hostility to the new york times and and uh that's that's where that's where that comes from it's it's not geostrategic so much as it is you know you want us out right yeah right that's their narrative that's that's their narrative right
and you know, uh, this takes us me into the, this next thing. Is, is I've, uh, there was this piece that I think we we talked about it very briefly over dinner the other night, Evan. But um, the, the Bloomberg, and I can't remember the name of 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 the writer now. Uh, did this piece about David Lynch? It was David Lynch. That's, that's right. Um, not the filmmaker. Uh, working, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about how uh, the Obama administration is thin in terms of its its China experts right now. Um, what, what did you take? What did you make of this? Well, the first thing I noticed was that he he didn't mention the guy I work for, right? So yeah. Hank Paulson, who played a major role in U.S.-China relations during this 2006 to eight period, did, did, didn't rate a mention this playing <laughs> role. The second thing I noticed, I mean, the emphasis on kind of language and country expertise. I mean, you can make too much of that. I mean, if you think about the people in American foreign policy who've had the greatest impact on U.S.-China relations over the years. They didn't speak Chinese. Yeah, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski. These were not China experts in the sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it was being used there. So I think the question is always, does an administration have a strategic sense of where it wants to take the relationship and right. its posture in the region. And that's not and always... And it doesn't have the ability to have a coordinated execution of strategy tactically. Oh, one and thing that's that the piece... focus that people really ought to talk about, not whether people speak Chinese. Right. Or... One of the, the, the pieces, uh, one of the, the points raised in that piece was that from the Chinese side, it feels like there isn't a go-to guy anymore. There isn't... I mean, it, maybe earlier in the Obama administration, it was Jeff Bader, uh what was your sense of that? I mean, Evan Medeiros is now the other Evan in 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 the field. Uh, he's uh, he's sort of now the State Department's top China guy, right? No, I, mean, I but, thought the issue was at the senior levels, right? You know, uh, when 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 Hank had the strategic economic dialogue, he definitely played a role as a a central point of contact in the U.S.-China relationship at the most senior levels. Remember, he was Secretary of the Treasury. Right. But in the strategic economic dialogue, he acted as as a personal representative of the president, not as a cabinet secretary, which is why his counterpart was not the finance minister. It was a vice premier. Vice premier. So I, I, I thought the issue here was more about, you know, at the, at the upper levels, how is the relationship organized? Um, but... I don't know. I mean, I think U.S.-China relations, the issues in U.S.-China relations are the same as they've been for decades. Um, what and, happened to China being sort of handed over to, to Joe Biden's portfolio? What, I mean, we, there was some talk about that some years ago, wasn't there? I was in the last administration. You keep asking me about how this administration is <laughs> organized. I don't know how this administration is organized. <laughs> they don't you tell know, you. <laughs> so I'm not never. So, but there are lots of you know there are lots of smart you know there are lots of smart China experts in the administration. I don't think that I don't think that's really an issue. well. We're very glad to have had two smart China experts in in the room with us today. And uh, I think we've come to the moment in our show, and we have to move on to recommendations. But thanks, first, first of all, thanks a ton, Evan and, and Damien, for coming in and thanks. Thanks sharing to the your, your, guys, by the way. Yeah. Always a pleasure You're to welcome. do the show. You're welcome. Uh, Jeremy, let's start with you with, with recommendations. What do okay, you got for us? Okay, I have two. One is while this uh, APEC uh, circus was going on, the uh, wheelchair-bound activist Niulan uh, and her husband uh, and daughter were basically attacked by about 50 cops. And they are now uh, um, basically imprisoned in their own house. Uh, her husband got beaten up quite badly. And uh, I'm just recommending Ni Yulan's Twitter feed because, you know, in one of the absurdities of, of our age that, you know, seems to come out of China quite a lot, you have somebody who's being, you know, harassed very badly uh, by the security state and is on Twitter tweeting about it. Um, kind of horrible as a recommendation, but uh, also uh, What's I her think, cause? Uh, she has uh, a variety of causes. Um, 
I think uh, I don't remember what so she, she broad first became. Spectrum dissidents. I, I I don't think she's one of those broad spectrum dissidents that you don't uh, approve of uh, as much. I think she did have some particular causes. Um, but, uh, you know, a wheelchair-bound lady, I mean, I don't think it really matters what her cause was. I think this is, uh, this is something that one should pay attention to. Um, the other recommendation is a collection of essays and articles on the China-Africa relationship. It's called Think Pieces, Making Sense of the China-Africa Relationship. And oh, it's on good. the China-Africa Knowledge Project, which is, I think, something called the Social Science Research Council. Anyway, we'll put up a link. One of the contributors is Howard French. I'm not surprised. That's great. Damien, what do you have for us? Well, since we were uh, talking about uh, increasing anti-Westernism and uh, sort of uh, this uh, growing nationalism and Zhou Xiaoping specifically, I would actually encourage uh, uh, folks who haven't read the original Zhou Xiaoping piece in Chinese in full to actually take a look at that. And, 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 and secondly, in tandem, I think there was a piece that was published not too long ago by a Beijing University a professor uh, that was entitled "In Defense of Zhou Xiaoping," uh, it's it's actually more of a nuanced argument than you think, and I think that reading those two in tandem can I think really help you elucidate what's actually going on and 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 what are sort of uh, where you know where the genesis of all this is really coming from. Kaiser, sorry, I, just to go back, I, I did, remembered what Ni Yulan, she, she, she got famous for, de, she's a lawyer, she got famous for defending people who, whose houses were, you know, Child. were being uh, forcibly relocated. And she also uh, defended some gongers, some uh, Falun Gong people. Uh, gongers. Flugies is our preferred term of art here. Flugies. Uh, flugies. flugies. Okay. Evan, do you have a recommendation for us for this Yeah, week? I got a book. It's oh, good. A book. kind of a dense read, but... Um, since we were talking about regional tensions, I, I just finished reading a book called Brother Enemy, which was written by Nayan Chanda, uh, who about the time this book was published, which was circa, I don't know, 1985 or 86, he was the Indochina correspondent of the old Far Eastern Economic Review, oh. back when the review was the review. <laughs> and um, it's essentially a history of Indochina after the U.S. withdrew in 1975. So oh, okay. the subtitle was The War After the War. And it's the origin of, you remember, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia right, and the sure. Chinese invaded Vietnam. And, and the most interesting thing about it, aside from that, you know, you can see how some of the problems that you see in Asia today, we were talking about nine dash lines and things like this. These are old issues that go back a long way, was that at the time the U.S. withdrew from Vietnam, you know, the rationale for the U.S. war in Vietnam for a long time had been that, Vietnam was going to be the pointy tip of the spear of Chinese right, expansion the first yeah, into Southeast Asia. And then it turned out that was completely backwards. And Vietnam turned out to be China's most bitter rival and, and foe. And so the lesson is that history and nationalism rather than ideology are really the principal drivers of, of policy in Asia. But it's a brilliant book on you know, you get Pol Pot and a lot, of that, a lot of that history. And the United States enters it into it in a big way as well. Great. Uh, that sounds like a, a really good read. Uh, I'm going to go for something a little more modest here. And uh, Alec Ash's Ant Hill, which is a little writer's colony that he keeps together here, uh, just published a piece by our friend Laszlo Montgomery, who uh, runs the fabulous China History podcast. Now, Laszlo has been uh, kind of quiet. A lot of people have been asking me what, why, why he hasn't been recording. He's actually recording 10 podcasts on the history of tea in China, which will come out at the beginning at the end of November. So very excited to hear about the, I mean, I, I've switched to tea recently. And so I guess I'm curious to, to learn more about its origins. Um, anyway, he 
in in his other life, which he's just finally sort of said goodbye to, he was uh, representing Chinese manufacturers and negotiating with with American companies, uh, and has a, an incredible depth of knowledge about the whole Chinese manufacturing industry, uh, some of which he shares in this very excellent first person article that he he's written on Ant Hill. So please check that out. It was a, a real delight to read. Um, Evan, thanks again, man. Thanks. Damien, thanks. thanks. Jeremy. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Evan. Thank great you, to see you guys and uh, enjoy the, the remaining oxygen that we, we have left before the, the smog bank rolls in. And we'll see Got you about guys. Half an hour. Yeah, half an hour. <laughs> next week. <laughs> on the what are we doing here? <laughs> Take care, folks. <laughs> Bye-bye.